Stay tuned for a teaching you can trust, a message that will inspire, strengthen, and equip you with vital insights and understanding from the Word of God. Here is Rick. Welcome to the program. My name is Rick Renner, and I want to say thank you for spending this time with me. And this week, we're going to begin a brand new series in the book of Jude. Most people don't even pay attention to the book of Jude. They think it's just a little bitty book at the end of the Bible stuck right before the book of Revelation. But the book of Jude is power-packed. And in the book of Jude, Jude talks about events that are going to occur at the very, very end of the age, including an attack against the faith and what we should do about it. And this week, we're offering you my series, which is called Earnestly Contending for the Faith. And of course, it comes with a study guide. And we're also offering you my book, which is called How to Keep Your Head on Straight in a World Gone Crazy. And in this book, I cover a lot of the verses which we're going to be dealing with in this program. But right now, I want you to reach for your Bible, and we're going to go right to the book of Jude, verse 1. And at the end of the program, I'll tell you how you can get a hold of these teaching materials. But let's go to Jude, chapter 1, verse 1, where the Bible says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Look at that. We are preserved in Jesus Christ. That means you are preserved in Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? Well, you're going to find out today. And then in verse 2, it says, Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. But today, I want us to begin at the very beginning of verse 1 with the name Jude, who is Jude. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. You say Jesus had half-brothers? Yes, he did. In fact, you can read about them in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Now, let me make it clear. Jesus was Mary's firstborn. And when we read Matthew chapter 2, the Bible tells us that Mary conceived before she and Joseph ever sexually came together. Mary was not impregnated with Jesus by Joseph. She became pregnant when the Holy Spirit came upon her and she supernaturally conceived Jesus. He is literally the Son of God in a category different than anybody else. But according to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had a regular marital relationship and they produced other natural children. For example, we read in Matthew 13, verse 55, that he had a brother whose name was James. It seems James was the second born brother. And guess what? It's the same James who wrote the book of James. But then there was another son. His name was Joseph. That's what the King James Version says. A better translation would be Joseph, obviously named after his natural father, Mary's husband, Joseph. Then there was another son whose name was Simon. And finally, there was another son whose name was Jude. And that is the same Jude who wrote the epistle of Jude. But when you read Matthew 13, verse 56, it also says Jesus had sisters. And when you read this in the Greek text, it is plural, which means there were at least two. 
That doesn't mean there were only two, but because it's plural, there were at least two. So when you look at the family of Mary and Joseph, it's really quite amazing. Jesus was the Son of God, supernaturally born, but then naturally born after him was James, then Joseph, then Simon, then Jude. This was an entire family that was designated and called by God into the ministry to impact the world. And the reason I'm telling you this is because God loves to call families. Say amen. He loves to call families. And God wants to call your family. He wants to call you, your spouse, your children to do something impacting for the kingdom of God in this life. And actually, if you go back to the Old Testament, you find that God has always been in the business of calling families. For example, Noah was called, but not just Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives, they were all called as a family to fulfill God's plan. Or how about Abraham and Sarah and their entire lineage? God tapped that entire family and called them to do something significant. Or how about Isaac and Rebekah? They were selected by God with their entire lineage to play a major role in the plan of God. Or how about Jacob and his 12 sons? All of them were called by God to do something impacting. Or how about Moses, his brother Aaron, their sister Miriam? All of them were called by God into the ministry. Then when you come to the New Testament, we find this marvelous example of Mary and Joseph, their four sons and at least two daughters, all of them called as a family to do something impacting. But how about the family of John the Baptist. Zachariah was his father. Elizabeth was his mother. The two of them were called by God. Zacharias was in the ministry, and it was their son who became John the Baptist, another family called by God into the ministry. Or how about James and John, whom the Bible calls the sons of Zebedee, two brothers who were called by Jesus into the ministry. Here's another example of God extending his call to an entire family. Or how about Peter and Andrew? They were brothers called into the ministry. And wait, there's one more really powerful example, and that is the apostle Paul himself. Everyone knows the story of the Apostle Paul, that he was called dramatically into the ministry. But when you read what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 16, verse 7, we find that he had two relatives who were also called into the ministry, and they were called into the ministry before he was. Listen to what he says. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen. That means my relatives. And then he adds, my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. There are three members of Paul's family called into the ministry. And in one family, there are three apostles. That is just amazing to me. But wait, there's even more. How about the family of Barnabas. We first read about Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. He was a rich man who gave a big gift to the ministry, and God called him into the ministry. And he had a sister whose name was Mary. It just so happens that his sister Mary had a very large apartment right downtown Jerusalem near the temple complex. 
And that big apartment is where Jesus and his disciples regularly came. It is the same place where Pentecost took place. It is the same meeting place that was used throughout the New Testament for believers in the city of Jerusalem. So there you have Barnabas, you have his sister Mary, and Mary had a son whose name was John Mark, the same John Mark who was called into the ministry and traveled with his uncle Barnabas, traveled with the apostle Paul, and later in life became the writer or became the assistant to the apostle Peter and actually penned the gospel of Mark, which by the way was really the gospel of Peter, but Mark wrote it, so it's called the gospel of Mark. But Mark listened as Peter dictated and Mark wrote down what Peter had to say. It's actually Peter's gospel, but Mark wrote it, so it's called the Gospel of Mark. But that's another amazing example of how God called another entire family. And there's a scripture that I want you to lay hold of, and that is Acts chapter 16, verse 31, which says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. It is not a promise that if you get saved, the rest of your family is automatically going to be saved. But it is a promise that something happens when you call on the Lord. When you get saved, it triggers something that happens in your family. One by one, like dominoes, they begin to fall. They begin to come into the kingdom of God. It is a promise that you can lay hold of that salvation will come to your entire family. And in these verses, we amazingly find out that God delights in calling families. I think about my own family. You know, people look at me and Denise and our sons were all in the ministry, but it didn't really begin with us. I had a great grandmother, my great grandmother Miller, who ran in the Oklahoma land rush. And she had a Pentecostal experience with God before Azusa Street or Topeka, Kansas outpourings ever took place. In fact, my great grandmother Miller had so much faith that when she was living in her dugouts and her tents out on the plains of the Oklahoma Territory, people would come in their horses and buggies from the entire region for her to lay hands on them because she had faith that could move mountains and she knew how to expel devils. And not only that, I did a research of our genealogy on the Renner side of our family and found out that on the Renner side of our family, generations and generations of people were called into the ministry. God called our family. So what has happened to me and Denise and our sons? It's an evidence of God calling our entire family, and we are really a family called by God. Well, that's what James was. That's what Jude was. That's what Joseph and Simeon and then their sisters and Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they were all from the same family. And now when we come to the book of Jude, that's who we're talking about. Jude is one of the half-brothers of Jesus called by God into the ministry. Isn't that just amazing? And again, the reason I call him the half-brother of Jesus is because they had the same mother, but they did not have the same father. Jesus' father was God. Jude's father was Joseph. But notice how he identifies himself. He says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Wow. Notice he calls himself the servant of Jesus Christ. I've recently heard somebody say, we are not servants. We are sons. 
Well, we are sons. That is our position. We've been adopted as the sons of God say amen. But servant is our function and servant is our attitude. And you know, in the Greek New Testament, there really are three words for a servant, which we find in the epistles. One is the Greek word diakonos. You can find the word diakonos in Acts chapter 6, where it's translated as the word deacon, but it really describes a high-level servant, one that professionally serves. Then there is the word huperetas, which we can find in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1, where the Apostle Paul says, if you want to know what to think of us, think of us as the servants of Christ. That's this word, huperetas. And the word huperetas was a very important word used to describe criminals which were condemned to live the balance of their lives in the bottom of ships. Big oars were put into their hands. And their job was to row, row, row the boat for the rest of their life. They were to row and row and row and row. It didn't matter whether they liked it or not. That was their assignment. And the fact of the matter is if those men didn't row the boat, the boat would not move. And that's the word which Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 4.1 to describe ministers of the gospel where it is translated as the word servants, the Greek word huperetas, which means if you're called into the ministry, you need to understand God has called you to help move the church. Our job is to row, row, row the boat. We are to do it all of our lives. That is our calling, is to help have forward movement in the church of God. That's our assignment. So now you have this word diakonos, Acts chapter 6. Translated deacon, it describes a high-level servant. You have the word huperetas, which you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, to describe those that are down under, under rowers, rowing to move the church and give forward progress to the church. But then you come to this word. And the word which Jude uses is not the word diakonos. It is not the word huperetas. It is the word dolas. And the word dolas is the most abject term for a slave in the entire Greek language, even outside of the New Testament. This is the most abject term for a slave. Sometimes translators translate it as the bond slave of Jesus Christ. But people really don't know what that means, a bond slave. So what does the word dolos mean? The word dolos, which here is translated as the word servant, describes one that is absolutely sold into slavery, his entire existence is to do the bidding and to do the will of his master. You could say that this was an individual whose life was completely swallowed up in the will of his master. He lived to do what his master said, to carry out any assignment that his master ever gave to him. His sole reason for existence was to do the bidding and to do the will of his master. And that is now the word which Jude uses to describe himself. Of course, he's the half-brother of Jesus. He could have began with that. He could have said, Jude, the illustrious half-brother of Jesus. But instead he said, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the Greek word dolos, which means my life is sold out to Jesus. 
I am completely surrendered. I am completely committed to him. And my sole reason for existence now is to serve him and to do anything he asks me to do. My goal is to faithfully execute any assignment he ever gives to me. And my dear friend, I want to tell you, that's my goal in life. My goal in life is not to sit in this chair and teach you on television. My goal in life is to do what Jesus asks me to do, which is to sit in this chair and to teach you through media. What is God's will for your life? Denise and I have lived the best of our ability to obey the Lord on every level, to obey Him on where we live, what we do, where we minister. We have given our lives to serve Him. We are the sons and we are the daughters of God and we rejoice in that. But in practice, we are the servants of God. And our job is to hear what he has to say, to get in line, and to do what he asks us to do. And we've done our best to teach that to our sons. And now with our sons, we're teaching it to our grandchildren. That the highest goal in life is not success. It's not fame. It's to do whatever it is that Jesus asks us to do. Are we the sons and daughters of God? Of course we are. We rejoice in that. It's amazing that we have been adopted as the sons and daughters of God. But in practice in life, our task is to fulfill any assignment that he gives to us. And to do that, you have to have a servant mentality. But then notice what Jude says next. He says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The word brother is the Greek word adelphos. And you've heard me say it on the program before. It's from the word delphos. And the word delphos is the old word for the womb of a woman. But if you put an A on the front, it becomes adelphos. And it describes somebody born out of a womb. And when it becomes the word brother, it's two or more born out of the same womb. They are related because they come from the same place. And of course, James could use this word because he and his brother came out of the womb of the Virgin Mary. He's describing his natural born relationship to James. So now he says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the natural born brother of James. And then he adds, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Well, when you read this in the Greek text, you surprisingly find out that it actually says something a little different. For example, rather than say to them that are sanctified by God the Father, it says to them that are in God the Father, in God the Father. And the word in is a little preposition which means to be inside of something. In fact, you're so inside of it that you're deeply embedded inside of it. And now James is describing our condition in Christ. When we were placed in Christ, the little Greek word in, this preposition, means we've been deeply embedded inside him. It is the most secure place you will ever have. My friend, I want to tell you, you are deeply embedded inside Jesus Christ. But the Greek text, rather than says sanctify, it says having been loved, having been loved by God the Father. And the word loved is a form of the Greek word agape, which is one of the most difficult words in the entire New Testament to translate because it is so full. How do you translate the word 
agape. So what does the word agape mean? The word agape describes what you feel when you look on something so marvelous that it just causes awe and admiration to rise out of your heart. You love it. You want to love it. You want to cherish it. It is so marvelous that everything in you is compelled to love that object. And really the best example of agape love, which we have on the human level, is when a newborn baby comes into the world. When a parent sees that baby, even though that baby cannot say, hello, dad, hello, mom, even though the baby has nothing to give at that moment, when you lay your eyes on that baby for the first time, what do you feel? You're overwhelmed with love. That's agape. You want to cherish that child. You want to love that child. You are in awe at the miracle of that child. That is the word that is used here. And in fact, it also means to love even if you're never thanked or acknowledged for what you've done. Therefore, it is a love with no strings attached. And the word agape is the same word used in John 3, 16, when the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God looked upon the world, which had been marred by sin, Satan had done his destructive work, but yet when God looked at the world, he could still see his mark. He could still see his handiwork in humankind. And when God saw humankind, he was so awed by man. That's what the word agape means. He so loved the world, he was compelled to do something to change the status of the world. And he gave his only begotten son. All of that is what the word Love means, and that's how God loved you. God loved you before you even recognized him. God loved you so much that he moved on your behalf. He arranged circumstances and situations to bring you to a place where you would accept him as the Lord of your life and be deeply embedded inside him. All of that is because you've been loved by him. Isn't that amazing? But wait, the rest of the verse goes on to say, and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Well, I'm going to tell you, that is powerful. But we're going to have to get to that tomorrow because we're out of time. But while we have covered so much material today, and my friends, I want to remind you that we're offering you my book, which is called How to Keep Your Head on Straight in a World Gone Crazy. Oh, please order this book. The subtitle says, Developing Discernment for These Last Days. And we're also offering you my entire series, which is called Earnestly Contending for the Faith, Making the Choice to Maintain Your Faith Regardless of Pressures to Modify It in These Last Days. And this comes with a study guide. And in just a moment, my announcer is going to tell you how you can order this teaching material but if you're a partner with our ministry, thank you for being a partner. You're helping us take the teaching of the Bible to people all over the world. I'm praying for a revival of the Bible to come to the body of Christ. Do you know a recent statistic shows that just 9% of Christians actually read their Bibles? My friends, that's a tragedy. Let me ask you, are you reading your Bible? You need to read your Bible. Where the word of a king is, there's power. That's what we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 4. And that's why I urge you to dive into the Bible. Don't be among the nearly 90% that never pick up their Bible. And my task 
is to bring the Word of God to people that are spiritually famished. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 21 says, The lips of the righteous feed many. That's my job, but I can only do it because of my wonderful partners. So partner, thank you. And if you're not a partner, please become a partner with our ministry. And the moment you do, we're going to send you Denise's book called The Gift of Forgiveness. And we're going to send you my book called Life in the Combat Zone because we always give these two books to anyone who becomes a part of our big, wonderful partner family. And we say, welcome. Just give us a call or go online to become a partner with our ministry right now. But right now, our announcer is going to tell you how you can get these wonderful teaching materials. And then I'll be back. And I want to really pray for you. We are definitely living at the end of the age when many events prophesied long ago are coming to pass. One of those prophesied events is apostasy that will emerge in the church at the end of the age. What exactly does the Bible say about it? And what should be our response to these end time developments? In this crucial series, Earnestly Contending for the Faith, Rick Renner teaches about what the Bible says will occur in the last days and how we are to respond to it. If your desire is to stay on track with God and to stay rooted in His Word, then this is a series you will need to hear again and again so you can get these truths deep into your heart. In this series, Rick covers what it means to earnestly contend for the faith, how God expects us to maintain the purity of the faith, and divine warnings to those who twist the doctrine of grace. This five-part series is available in digital or physical format starting at just $10. And today, we are also offering you Rick's book, How to Keep Your Head on Straight in a World Gone Crazy, for just $20. In this book, you'll discover what you need to be doing to stay anchored to truth, how to discern right and wrong teaching, and how to be spiritually prepared for living victoriously in these last days. Order this series, Earnestly Contending for the Faith, and the book, How to Keep Your Head on Straight in a World Gone Crazy. Call the number on your screen now, or go to renner.org to order. Call or go online now. This is Rick Renner, and I'm standing inside what's going to be the new studio in our TV studio in Moscow. You have given to make this happen. And right now, as you know, prices in Russia are just skyrocketing because of what's taking place in our part of the world. I want to say thank you to every one of you that have done something sacrificial to help us buy all the materials we need to finish the interior. We need to wrap this up as fast as we can. Proverbs 10:21 says, the lips of the righteous feed many. And I want you to understand that from this spot, we're going to feed people all over the world the Word of God. And by being a partner with us and being a part of our giving team to wrap this up, every time the signal goes with the Word of God into people's private spaces all over this part of the world, God is going to credit you with part of the reward for what's going to happen because it's your seed. And I want to say thank you in advance for being a part of our giving team. Today we have had a wonderful time in Jude verse 1, but we didn't finish it. So when we come back tomorrow, we're going to pick up where we left off. Please do not miss tomorrow's program. But remember that if you need prayer, call us right now.
We're waiting for our phone to ring and to talk to you and to pray with you or send us an email. And the moment we hear from you, we're going to release our faith for Jesus to step into your life and do something fabulous, and he will. But I want to pray for you right now. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus that you call every one of us, and not just us, but you call entire families. And I speak the call of God to you. I speak it to your family. I speak it to your relatives. Receive it by faith. And Father, we ask you to work in our homes. We thank you for this. In Jesus' marvelous name, amen. I'll be back tomorrow, and I'm looking forward to being with you. But remember Ecclesiastes 8.4, where the word of a king is, there's power.